out to you, uh, email you Absolutely. again? Absolutely. Or just call you on well, Skype? Every, every video has in the description the place it says to Skype it, that email address. Okay. Great. And it. Well, if you see a if you see a Jess Jessica, then that's that's my friend. Okay. The only option, or the only let us say, condition, is that it be during the daytime. Yes, this time, like uh, okay. for you. Yep. Right now is good time. Okay, great. Thank you. All right. So, you you were asking how I met. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Mm. All right, so I will go ahead and tell you some of the story. And I, I recognize that a lot of the story happened before I ever left the U.S. Actually, the story, uh, the, the best place to start is the story of Eric Byrne, who mm. was a student of Freud. And that uh, he became famous, and it was a, a medical doctor who recommended the book. Flash forward, after reading the book and making some changes and beginning to recognize and understand things from a psychology point of view, <clears throat> I wound up in Michigan at the Huron Valley Institute, actually training as a therapist in mm -hmm. that TA tradition of Eric Byrne. Okay, well... All right. And I had already been through the master's degree program of computer science. And so in those days, a computer expert made a lot of money. Now, oh, yeah. a computer nerd is a nobody. <laughs> There's so many of them. <laughs> well, that's right. But see, we were in a, 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 an exclusive group in the old days. Yep. Um, so. Without getting too much into it, what I recognized was that much of the horror show that was the Ph.D. program uh, uh, in psychology was how to get a practice started and how to do it. In other words, it was all about the money. And I already had computer science in the sense that I, you know, this, this is a, <laughs> and I recognize this is a sport for me. I do not intend to get uh, the license, nor do I intend to get um, the, to have to establish one's own practice. Okay, it was for fun, is what you're saying? Well, I, yeah, but I, it took me that long because I had thought that I would do that. That's why I got into the psychology was because I thought that it would be a better career than computer science. So I actually loved the computer science. I was still basically heartbroken about life mm. okay i could recognize the duke and i thought the psychology would give it to me and guess what happened with me there is what i understand now and was actually as part of the teaching then is every psychologist is a failed psychology client uh. <laughs> those who can't teach sure yeah and that built the profession of psychology to where all of the psychologists have all of the heartaches and all the problems of everybody else, and they don't know how to get out of it. <laughs> that is a common theme, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. 
And so they have these things called uh, rules about transference and counter-transference and who, what you can say and all of that stuff laid out in a code of rules as well as all the diagnostic codes. But they never do deal with it on a heart level. They always deal with it on an intellectual level. Mm-hmm. Okay. So at that, that's, that's what I came to understand then. And that's why I decided that I'm not going to become a psychologist. And so that's when I got in touch with, uh, because I was all into all kinds of stuff. This was in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And and back then, it was a hotbed of all New Age kind of stuff. And so I got into all of it, reading Carlos Castaneda and... um, uh, Jonathan Livington Seagull by uh, Richard Bach and all of that kind of stuff led me into the ashram from of Muktananda that was established there. And there okay. I started to stay. Were you so, in, were you in started the university? meditation? Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, were you in the University of Michigan? Uh, yes, as part of the nursing school, actually, the nursing school had such a close relationship with uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, okay. excuse me, Huron Valley Institute in okay. those days. Yes, there was a close connection there. However, they had close connections with other universities okay. also. Um, and so uh, I did a bit of this and a bit of that to put together <laughs> things mm-hmm. you know you get credit for this and credit for that somewhere else so um <clears throat> in in any case uh getting into the muktananda thing and getting into the hinduism with the meditation and the incense and the kundalini rising and all of that kind of stuff that was by 1974 that period of time and that's when i started looking at <clears throat> Actually, I changed jobs from being a coder into being uh, an instructor at a, at a university so that I could have four or five months a year off, which I promptly got on a jet plane and took off to <laughs> India. Smart. And so I spent several years back and forth and back and forth. And then in 1980, I took a contract in Saudi Arabia, spent a year there, got a bunch of money, left went to India, and basically didn't return to the United States for 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way to do it. Ah, That's the way I got started in India. So I was all over India looking for magic and looking for all the well-known teachers. So uh, Rishikesh and uh, Damasala and uh, Pune and Ganeshpuri and Igatpuri and Ponticello and all of these places... um, uh, went to see Sai Baba in Bangalore, okay. and so I, I yeah. did India. Boy, did I do India. <laughs> I did it while yeah. I was uh, on the way and then a couple of years and wound up at Goenka. And there in Goenka, I spent about the next uh, three years or so uh, and uh, figured out that there's something missing. In other words, as I'm going up, I'm recognizing now I have reached the level of what Goenka has to teach. Mm-hmm. Let me go find out what's next. And so I wind up in Bodh Gaya. Do you know Bodh Gaya? I have not heard of Bodh Gaya. That, that was the place where Buddha became enlightened. <clears throat> okay. With the Bodhi tree 
and many, many places having uh, temples there, including uh, Wat Thai Bodh Gaya. Mm -hmm. And that's where I did a retreat with Christopher Titmus. That was my first introduction, but I didn't, he didn't really talk too much about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, but I never met another monk there who was from uh, Wat Chulapatan. And basically, after a couple of conversations, one time he caught me reading the Basudi Maga, and he took it away from me and threw it on the bed, and he says, you've got to go see Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. <laughs> so within six weeks, uh, by the beginning of 1983, there I was <clears throat> at Watson Moke. Because <clears throat> I, I, I followed that lead. Well, when I first arrived at Watson Moke, a curious thing happened. And that was Achan Po was standing at the gate waiting for me. Okay. He was outside the temple at the temple gate. He wasn't just someplace thinking maybe that a prolong will come or not. He was standing at the gate waiting for me mm. and saying, where have you been? I have been waiting for you. Achan Po. Uh, Achan Po, the abbot of Watsu and Mok, yeah. the home of Thikka Buddha Dasa. And it took years before he finally told me the reasons that he knew I was coming was because he saw me on the road when he had been in Chumpan and came back to Chaya, and he saw me on the bicycle, with the thought, well, there's no place this guy's going to go but here. <laughs> and so he was there waiting for me. Now, that's the story, isn't it? So That's, that's quite incredible. Okay. It, it was incredible. And the feeling that I got from Achan Po was like a, an older brother who had been waiting on me. Uh-huh. And so that was my introduction. And one of the things that I could say that I really felt was at home. I felt that way walking in the place, that this is home now. Mm. I have found what I was looking for mm, through all of the psychology and all of that. I, and that was before I ever read anything about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa mm -hmm. or met him or anything. My first connection was with Achan Po. So that's, that's the story. Within a couple of days, I had started to spend time with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Wow. Was he just freely available to visit? Like, no. He was well guarded. <laughs> How did you have and access? The, and the main guard was Achan Po. You do not see Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa unless you go through Achan Po to get to him. Okay. <laughs> and Achan Po was waiting for you. He was. And he was waiting for me. You didn't, you didn't have to fight your way through. Right. So serendipity. Yeah. That was it. That he had seen me on the road just by happenstance because he doesn't go to Chumpon often. Hmm. And after you, you know, after you had Ajahn Po's, you know, I guess blessing, that was your introduction, essentially. That was it, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. And uh, there was already a monk there, a Western monk. His name was Brian, but he uh, disrobed or left or did something, I'm not quite sure. Uh, he was there for a while, and then he wasn't. <laughs> um, 
but he was the one who wanted uh, Achan Po to get started to do a thing called retreats. Mm-hmm. That they thought the retreat was an unknown thing. Okay, really? In the sense of a 10-day retreat or a fixed formal meditation time when a whole bunch of people get in close proximity, breathing <clears throat> breathing and coughing on each other and pretending that everybody, each other, people don't exist. Mm-hmm. So naturally, right from the get-go, noble silence is a, is a magic, is, a, is magical. Okay. The retreats become magical because of the delusional thinking that happens. But Brian was the one who started it, and so Bhikkhu Buddhadasa and Achan Po thought it was a good idea to actually attract Westerners to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, that was when the idea of the retreats got started. And so uh, <clears throat> during those times, I remember actually going with Achan Po to oversee and also do a little bit of work of clearing out the undergrowth of the uh, coconut grove that had finally been gotten by Achan or Bhikkhu Buddha Das's family. Mm. And that became the retreat center that is now called the International Dhamma Hermitage that as far as I can tell is the biggest retreat center in the world. They have room, private rooms for 370. Wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's quite a bit. They, the first off, they started with uh, a fortress-like thing with um, buildings all around an empty open courtyard that had trees and things like that in it. Uh, one for women and one for men and that there was um, room for, for about 60 people in each one of those, giving 120 accommodations totally. But a few years later, they built um, big barn kind of buildings um, with, with fencing around that had uh, room for 125 in each one, one for men, one for women. So there you go, you add that up, two times 125, plus two times 60, and that's 370 rooms. <laughs> that's, that's so cool. I hope I can visit someday. Five, five retreat, uh, excuse me, five meditation halls. Mm-hmm. When it's a really big one, they have to eat in shifts. <laughs> and so, uh, so it's a big place. You can see it on Google. Oh, really? Yeah, and it's all available on, on Google, uh, both Watsu and Mok, which is more than 400 acres, and then the retreat center, and, and then beside it is uh, uh, Dom Kiem, which is uh, uh, the Dhamma Hermitage for Westerners. Ah, uh, okay, I see it. It's beautiful and very big. <laughs> yeah, it's in Chaya in South Thailand. It's about two kilometers between Dom Kiem and uh, Wat Suan Mok. Mm. Great. So I'll, I'll send you a, 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 a URL of it. Sure. Late. Okay.
Okay. So, uh, that was the question you asked of how did I get to watch Suan Mok? Yeah, thank you. Um, it's fascinating how it seems like you mentioned, you said the word before, but you sort of fell into into where you were meant to to be without really much. Uh, Let us say that in another way, I was well prepared. Okay. For Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Okay, that's a good way to say that. You did your yeah. you did your um, your due diligence and. <laughs> I, yes, I did yeah. my homework. <laughs> you sort of circled I, India. You. <laughs> right, and and on top of that, I think what maybe ten or twelve something like that retreats. 10-day retreats with Goenka. So I was very familiar with that whole 10 show. retreats with Goenka, okay. How is the... I'm curious because I, I have plenty of friends interested, curious of Goenka. Is your overview of Goenka fairly fairly positive now that you've spent time with the, knowing Buddha Dasa's technique? Let us say this. At the background of everything I say, there is Goenka lurking. I quote <laughs> him often. Okay. That skill that you that you learn from those retreats, um, would you say that skill um, you've always it's been integral to your you know your practice those that vipassana? Yeah. Let us say this: that the vipassana and the jhana and the kundalini rising and the um, past life experiences and all of the magic and all of that stuff I did before I got to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. <laughs> okay. So I was ready for Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa to turn everything upside down. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wonderful. But that, that his turning things upside down doesn't mean that everything at once so on Mook is, is now upright because thousands and thousands of people have walked in to those, that place looking for the answers to their questions, and all they got were the other people who were there asking the same questions and nobody had any answers. That it was, uh, but <clears throat> it has been a tradition in Thailand, by the way, uh, that the real deeper teachings of the Dhamma have always been reserved for monks within the order, mm -hmm. which was not the way that it was in the time of the Buddha. Basically, it was that people figured out what the Buddha was actually teaching and got it well enough that they wanted to join the order. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, but now in Thailand, because of all of the expectations and, and uh, uh, the mass influx, and that started, by the way, in the time of uh, Achan, uh, excuse me, um, uh, Asok, 300 BC, 275 BC, that time. Okay. And that that was when uh, the, the, the followers of the Buddha got royal uh, approval, including building of monasteries, giving of robes, easy food, all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that attracted a whole bunch of people into the order, far more than could actually be sustained with the teaching. It's almost like this, that if you've got a university that's got 200 uh, teachers, you can maybe maintain two or 3,000 students. But when you've got 75,000 students but, and you don't increase your, your faculty, you've got yep. a problem. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. All right, and so that's what happened with Buddhism. And so a lot of the beliefs that people brought in to, with them, they came into the Sangha, which means now the real noble group is not everybody going in that direction, but it stayed, it's kept for a select few. Mm-hmm. And basically the door to the noble is the doorway by which it takes logic. And what I mean by logic is no longer thinking magically, but thinking in the sense of real. And that one of the most important teachings of the Buddha in that, uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa really pounded home all the time. Words like Paticca Samuppada, dependent origination, or uh, Edia Papajayata, which means the cause and effect with this and without that. But also the Buddha used the analogy of a fire. Uh-huh. You have fires are dependent upon fuel. Upadana. So, and that that fire is known by its fuel. So you have a log fire, you have a house fire, you have a hard-owned fire. They call heartburn. No, that's something else. <laughs> they have grass fire. Okay, so the fire is known by its fuel. But the important thing is, is that when something is robbed of its fuel. What happens to the fire? It, it goes out. Precisely so. Without this, this is subject to dying away. Mm-hmm. When you take the fuel away, uh, <clears throat> then the fire goes out. Mm-hmm. This is the most important teaching. And when the student really understands that, that's the gateway or the doorway into the Dhamma. Normally what happens though is that um, all of the suttas are learned, all of the scriptures learned, all of that kind of stuff and, in cl- and including all of the changes that have been made to the stuff with people who've had uh, magical thinking. Mm-hmm. But there's always been the group, the inner core, who really did get the teachings of the Buddha and that they do not advertise or let it out publicly. It's been dangerous to do that. In fact, Buddhism got wiped out in India because really? of the, the open teachings of the Buddha. Is it just so too, it became kind of secret. Is it too um, counter to cultural opinion and perspectives is that why it's so dangerous right because authorities don't like the teachings of the buddha unless the authorities are already in the buddha that's what happened actually that's a side story about the value of uh the lineage of kings of thailand up until modern times and i don't want to tell you that story because it's against the law to tell that story in thailand (laughs) (laughs) but 
there has been this noble element within the royal family. And when I say royal family, I'm talking about a big family. Uh, thousands of people in this royal family. Okay. Because in kings, you know, uh, for instance, King Mongoot had 48 kids. You think then in 150 that's, years later, you're not going to have a big family? <laughs> that's incredible. That's, that's too many children. <laughs> well, not if you're the boss, not if you're the king. Yeah, I guess so. Okay. Uh, and so King Mongoot had uh, a child named uh, Mon uh, Chula Longhorn. And Chula Longhorn had a younger brother, um, uh, Vidri. I'm, it's, the name is so hard to pronounce and so hard to spell that it's, it hasn't sunk in well. But so we'll call him Vidri, and that's wrong, but it's close enough. Um, was the younger brother. He was born in 1860, and he became a monk. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to 1917. As an old man, he disrobes as a monk in order to become the king of Thailand. Mm. And he lasted about three years until 1920, and the succession went on, but he, he was the king uh, in his late life. But that while he was a monk in the royal family, great, big, good things happened for Thailand mm. in the sense of education and getting the monks educated so that within the Sangha, uh, that was the place for kids to go to school in Thailand because Thailand in those days didn't have a national education system. Well, guess what? In the past 70 years, they've come together and gotten a really good one. And so one of the big reasons for young Thai men to ordain is no longer there. But during the lifetime of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and Achan Po from the early 19-teens, they actually did go uh, to become monks as kids and um, got educated. And so um, back to the royal family, it was through the royal family that uh, nobility or the real teachings of the Buddha became well known in the aristocracy of Thailand, not the commoners who were at the, uh, the let us say, still in the supernatural, uh, superstitious world uh, that Buddhism only visited, uh, that Thailand has its own animism. You could also almost call it um, a form of Hinduism. But they have things like uh, putting uh, sacred trees. In fact, we've got sacred trees right on the island. I can almost see the top of it from here. It's the biggest tree on this island. It is the biggest tree of that particular species anywhere in Thailand. Okay. And because of that, it's sacred. And boy, is it sacred. With a great big uh, a stoop up, you have to, to, to step up on a big thing like that to get anywhere near it. And now it's just all kinds of decorations. And they have uh, house spirits and other things. Okay, so that superstition that was originally in Thailand still remains today. And mm -hmm. it's unique, but it is very much um, spirit-oriented. Spirit houses, uh, trees have spirit. The top tree on the highest hill is always sacred. Well, guess what? 
when they had a deforestation running rampant in Thailand, guess what the monks did? They went and took all of the big trees and ordained them and put Buddhist robes around all of the big trees in North Thailand to save them from the log cutters, the mm -hmm. chainsaw guys. I saw that, yeah. Isn't that marvelous, okay, yeah. that you can actually use superstition to do a good thing? <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> So anyway, that's the story, and that's part of the lineage of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, because Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's teacher was a student of that king of Thailand, uh, Wicha, that I was telling you about. Mm -hmm. So that's that connection. I mean, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is really well connected within the royal family. Mm -hmm. But he was just a poor kid in South Thailand. But his connection was made because he figured out from the suttas, the actual teachings of the Buddha, and started arguing with some of the scholars in Bangkok. Wow, okay. And then he was giving public talks, and he taught about anatta. He was basically teaching against magic, and some of the monks didn't like it, and they pulled him up on charges of Sangha de Sesa, which is a fairly robust charge in the sense of someone who is intentionally trying to destroy the Sangha, to break it in half, to turn it into factions, okay? And so they wanted to have a meeting to get this resolved. Well, guess what? It was resolved in Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's favor because he had friends on that court. Okay. Yeah, that's... Who really knew that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was teaching the right thing. That's how it works. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And so that's another one of these serendipities. Well, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa now, for many years, refused to teach the one-two punch. He always taught directly. And that's how I got it from him also. Um, that one-two punch is to meet people where they are to gain their trust, to fit into their model, to really understand them and to know that they understand and you understand each other, and then you slowly drag them into the reality, out of their delusional system. That was the Buddhist technique. And that Buddhist technique then is one of the reasons why people will point at and says, see, the Buddha didn't teach a not at all. He taught that there was a self to be reborn. Well, no. He taught what these people already believed and knew so that they would gain confidence in him so that then later he could begin to give them the real Dhamma. Um, an example of that, um, from my own past, I had a friend who was a, uh, a monk. Uh, this was in 2002. A Western monk came to uh, to Thailand, uh, and he didn't have the visa complete yet mm -hmm. uh, for the long stay. And so he had to go get the temporary visa for only three months, and he went to Malaysia to do that. And while he was in Malaysia, he visited a, uh, in Kuala Lumpur, the capital, uh, he visited Thai Wat. It was known to be the Thai Wat. It's called uh, Wat Thai KL, openly. Everybody knows it. The Thai people built. Guess what? When he goes in there, the abbot is not Thai. He's Sri Lankan. <laughs> <laughs> and this Sri Lankan monk 
Now, uh, when David goes up to talk to him, they're speaking in broken English because he's talking to a Chinese woman. This Sri Lankan Buddhist monk in a Thai temple is speaking to a Chinese woman about her uh, newly uh, departed husband and all of the puja that's going to go on for the funeral and everything. And David hears over this, and he says, hmm, I'm, I'm talking to the wrong guy here. This guy doesn't know anything about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa if he's having this conversation with this woman. Mm-hmm. But after that conversation was over, he came to see David because a, a, a Westerner in, in monk's robes, you got to check it out. And when David told him that he had come from Watsu and Mok, the, the monk instantly changed. It was like, <gasps> like that. Yeah. And so that shows that they do have this one-two punch, that many noble monks will go and do the ceremonies that the people want because the people want them. But if the people start asking the right questions, they'll get the right answers. Yeah. And Bhikkhu Buddhadasa wouldn't have an inch of it. He says, oh, no, now, finally, it is time to openly speak the truth, to let the cat out of the bag. And, in fact, that's what Achan Po had talked to me about on these Internet calls, to always make sure that you teach the noble Dhamma, the super mundane. This is not a time to uh, dilly-dally with superstitions. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. And some people, they call me and they <laughs> never call back. Because <laughs> they're not ready for the Dhamma. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's that approach is much more effective. And I think, I think Westerners will find it more palatable. Um, at least Westerners who've been... Well, the whole the... fact that they're out there looking for something means that. You see, uh, if they if they have uh, if they're out if they're not out looking, that's because they've already found something, possibly something that they were taught as children, like the religion that they were born and raised in. Mm-hmm. So, people who are actually in the West interested in the Dhamma have at least the openness of that was too much magic that was that was you know jesus christ the son of god was quite a magic show but i've grown tired of it (laughs) you know with uh, walking dead and and uh no sex babies and all of that kind of stuff magical thinking well it's it's clear that the magic doesn't take away our suffering we're still it's absolutely clear that magic stories do not ca- cause the end of suffering. And so people do begin interested in, in Buddhism. Yeah. And they can find out that there, um, I think almost everyone in the West who knows about Buddhism knows that Buddhism doesn't have much to do with gods. Yeah. We will acknowledge that they exist to those people who believe in gods. But the Buddha one time says, yes, I know there are many gods, and I know where they reside. <laughs> and it's a, the, it's, it's a common belief system. It's commonly believed by many. Mm. And so um, 
that's generally almost all of the, part of the package that's delivered with with Buddhism is is that you don't need a god to get grace. Yeah, you do not need the divine and the holy to feel divine and holy. But along going in that direction of searching for that, we all are raised in that old system of criticism and critical thinking to where the entire teachings of the Buddha really is all about cooperation, community, friendship, bonding, nurturing. This is the whole teaching of the Buddha. But other religions will uh, will keep with the separation in the sense of we are good because we are Christians and you're bad because you're not a Christian. Mm-hmm. So therefore we can make low of you in yeah. order for us to feel good because we da- inherently don't feel good on the inside anyway. I think the, the term for that is ethnocentrism. Yep. Yeah. You, they also call it confirmation bias. After I believe something, I'm going to look for everything I can to confirm it, and I'll call that evidence. But I will ignore all the evidence that shows, no, that's not it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's such a challenge to manage all the fallacies that we get stuck inside of because we just don't know any better. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, one of the examples of that is um, uh, just heard just today of someone talking about it, that in the United States, there are no states, not one of them, not of the 50 states, that have, let us call it people of color, are the majority, not one state. All of the people of color are a minority in every state. Because of that, the likelihood of getting a governor or a um, representative or a, um, a senator is very remote because they're already in the minority. If the other voters vote in this way, ethnic oriented, in the sense of, well, there's never been any black governors, so why should we have one now? Right? And the answer to that is, you want to know how many governors there are that are black? All you have to do is go outside the United States and you can find thousands. <laughs> mm-hmm. That Thailand alone has, how many? I think it's like 75 or so, let's just say a rough number of, of provinces in Thailand, and every one of them has a governor, <laughs> and every one of them is Thai. Yeah. And some of them are so dark-skinned that they would immediately be not thought of as Thai at all in public in the United States. They'd be thought of as black. So that's really ridiculous for the, for people to say, well, we haven't ha- we don't do that here, or that ethnocentricity that you're talking about, or the confirmation bias that keeps people doing the same thing that they have been doing and getting really poor results. 
tip. That in fact, I'm setting you up for a, for one of my one-liners. Bhikkhu Buddhadasa, I asked him one time about, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, because you're talking about meditation and jhanas and that kind of stuff. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. If at first you don't succeed, look at what you're doing. Yeah, okay. That's back to the teaching of the Buddha. Look at what we're doing. Investigate. Yeah. Recognize when we're doing something unwholesome and, and, and put it down. Now, there's actually something that the Buddha had uh, referred to in the sense that every feeling has both appropriate and inappropriate. In the sense that there's even a time to be sad. But there's two ways to be sad. One is the kind of sadness that when you are sad, unwholesome things increase and wholesome things decrease. But there's another kind of sadness when wholesome things increase and unwholesome things decrease. That would be like the sadness of missing someone. Let us say you had a funeral and everyone is sad. And some of the people who are sad and thinking, uh, I'm, I'm not only sad that Grandpa's dead, but that Uncle George is going to get more of the goods than I will. <laughs> and the other way of being sad is to say, uh, Grandpa's dead, let me give Uncle George a great big hug and tell him how much I love him. <laughs> okay, so... That's a way of understanding the teaching of the Buddha is there are things that are wholesome and appropriate, and there are things that are unwholesome and inappropriate. But that is that separation is across many avenues of discussion. For instance, looking at things to see what's going on and to recognize it is appropriate way of looking. But looking at something and say, oh, I like that, I want it. And let me go get some of that stuff. Now, that would be inappropriate. Okay. Okay, so everything has a good part and everything has a downside. And, and wisdom will say, instead of look, looking at what we're doing as either right or wrong, look at it in the sense of, is it wholesome the way that I'm doing it or is it unwholesome? Okay. An example of that would be watching YouTube. Whatever we're doing, watching YouTube, okay. But one of the ways of watching YouTube is to say, you know, this stuff is addicting and I ought to go be meditating. But I don't go meditate. I keep looking at the YouTube thinking that I ought to go meditate and I'm beginning to feel bad and not enjoying my watching the video because I'm feeling bad because I'm telling myself I ought to go meditate. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a mess. <laughs> Well, that's unwholesome, watching videos. Or there's a wholesome way of watching videos, which would be looking for the Dhamma in everything that you say, aha, that guy's suffering. I wonder how he's feeling, you know. So that would be the, uh, the more wholesome way of, do of doing it. Okay. And so uh, this is basically the, the whole thing about are we going to do it wholesomely or unwholesome. Now, one of the ways that we can also use that division, 
rather than characteristic uh, language of bright and dark or good and bad and whatnot. Well, a better way of looking at it is to call it nurturing versus critical. Yes. Back to Eric Byrne with his critical parent and nurturing parent. He could see that. And so I've got to give Eric Byrne a lot of credit because he could see that basic thing that the Buddha is teaching is, is that if you nurture, then you're giving fuel to that fire of friendship, community, uh, uh, taking care of. A clear example of that is the baby. When the baby is first born and is taken in to uh, give to the mother, she will bond with it. Take care of it. And everybody in the room gets really gushy. <laughs> because, uh, uh, and the chemical that they have uh, uncovered that does that is oxycodone. So this oxycodone is, is manufactured in the brain according to the hormonal system and whatnot like that. And it's basically the friendship of the bonding chemical. Yes. And... Some people have tried to cut open a plant, push it and shove it around, put it into a pill, and sell it with something similar to the same name. These opiates. And people will become addicted to the opiate almost as if the opium pill now is their only pill. Friend. Yep, exactly. Instead of having this real thing that's happening, which is kind of gushy. And that I experienced that with the monks at Wat Suan Mok, that they actually cared for me in a way that I'd never been cared for before, and, except when I was really a little kid. Mm. And in fact, it was almost an affront that, that Achan Po was so kind to me. What, they, what do you mean? Uh, he would just show up. <laughs> I got over that. But he, for one thing, he would come and whisper behind my ear a one-liner and then walk on by. <laughs> he had several of them, so as to surprise me, but he had two in general that he would use. One would be the poly word ta-ta-ta, which is yes. basically saying, be here now. And basically what it's saying, hey, man, if I can get this close to you, you're not awake. You're not being here now. If you were really here now, I guess he could see that I was looking at something way over there. And so my whole attention was way over there. And he sneaks right up behind me. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Or daydreaming or whatever like that. Uh, the other one would be uh, that he would say was not sure. Other things that he would do would be like standing in the yard of the cootie that I was in, ever how long, I don't know, waiting for me to figure out that he had come to see me. <laughs> Without clearing his throat or banging anything or making noise, he just stands out there and waits for me to look out to see that he's come. <laughs> now that's caring. <laughs> I really feel like even telling you about how much he cared for me. Wow. He's still alive. He's over on the other island here. I go to see him occasionally. He's a good okay. friend. That's amazing. 
it's uh it's something i've never i've never seen that type of connection beyond you know really really young young people it's uh oh but it happens with ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances war buddies or people who are on the same sport team yep they can be okay. on the same sport team and be really competitive with each other or they can be the best of buddies and sometimes that best of buddies is really really deep mm -hmm. so after the war they still communicate. They still they feel like the connections that I made with the guys that I was in service with. I'll never be able to repeat that. Mm -hmm. But that's not true. That's just magical thinking. Of course, if you if you go through the efforts of making connections with people, you have a whole lot of friends. Mm. Amazing. How do you recommend that facilitate? How do you recommend that happen? Manifest, you know. And it manifests with joy. It manifests with gushy feelings. It manifests with friendship, with okay. wholesome thoughts. This is why we practice Anapanasati, is to actually help ourselves become friends <clears throat> within. To start giving the, ourselves the nurturing and with the nurturing thoughts and the nurturing uh, conversation just like we got from mommy when she was nurturing us as a child we picked up her nurturing uh, instructions mm -hmm. okay and that in fact a lot of what mom has to say is now put to, to happy music for kids okay. so goo goo gaga I mean this is the kind of noise that you make when uh, when you're around babies yeah okay so that's that's also um part of the songs of say zippity doo da zippity a my oh my what a wonderful day okay so that's that whole kind of uh being friends together okay of cooperating so um, let us say that when we run across attributes of ourselves that we don't like, then naturally we want to say that's bad and we should get rid of it. An example of that would be anxiety. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Nobody wants to feel anxious, right? Okay. Yeah. Well, if we recognize that anxiety has some roots, it has the roots from anxiety down to tension, from tension down to a little bit of fear, just a little bit of fear dripping on and on and on, which then can be based down to the level of adrenaline, which is set off by the reptilian brain, saying that something's a little bit amiss, something is wrong. But when we have the kind of thoughts of, ain't nothing wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, no problems. Um, everything is hunky-dory. Uh, Gucci, Gucci, Gucci. Uh, <laughs> um, everything's going to be all right. These are the kind of thoughts then that turn on the serotonin, turn on the cortisol, and turn off the leaky faucet of adrenaline and uh, cortisol. It's a feeling of ah. like safety or... 
Right. You and so an, an easy way to say it though is really hard for people to understand and, and but it can be used in practice, but it shows why practice is so hard for many people when they use the word hard <laughs> is that you have spent many, many years now talking yourself into feeling bad. You've been critical. You learned how to be critical from the time that you were in early school. Do this, do that, clean up your room, straighten your hair, take a bath, do your homework. You know the whole nine yards of civilizing a human with criticism. So we learned all of that criticism. And so now we turn that criticism back on ourselves and have those kind of thoughts of good and bad. This is good. That's bad. This is up. This is down. This is black. This is white. You do this. You don't do that. That's the rules. This is against the rules. That's criticism. But a mommy who loves her infant and cares for the infant is not going to slap the kid around when he's pooping in his diaper if he's only three days or six weeks old. Yeah. No, we nurture the child and we take care of him and we do Gucci, Gucci, Gucci while we're changing the diaper. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And that's natural to do it that way if we've got the brain chemistry right. Uh-huh. But then by the time we're five or six years old, mommy changes into a devil woman. She's now the boss. First she took care of you. Now it's time for you to go do what you were told to do. Yeah. But there's a whole society that's telling her that she's got to tell you what to do. Yeah, it's... You got to go to school. It's sort of like the, uh, the chain of cause and effect. Mm-hmm. So, there was a cause and effect. The causing of the nurturing was hormonal, but the causing of criticism is magical thinking. The magical thinking of the government is every kid needs to be educated, right? Okay, yeah. Yeah. Look how much suffering that causes. I don't know if the problem is the education, but the means in which it's done, right? Uh, when we're talking about because kids need to be educated, we're going to figure out a way to do it. We're going to call it schools. Mm-hmm. There's other ways for kids to get educated. No, I, I, I agree. Yeah. yeah. One of the ways for kids to get educated is give them a cell phone. I, I say that only to upset people because a lot of people say, oh, wait a minute. Now you got to take the cell phones away from the kids and put them in that school. The government approved school. You can't. <laughs> but there's many ways to get an education. In fact, a lot of kids, uh, the gamers, the kids who were gamers 20 years ago run the United States military today. Oh, okay. Who would have thought? Hmm. Why? Because the gamers who learned to play the games, they were the ones who were brought into the army to operate the, uh, all of the uh, heart, all the computers, all the equipment. And so they grew up in that world, mm-hmm. including flying the drones and operating the satellites. I mean, if you're a gamer, you love to do that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So 
um, this is the way of, of looking at it is there's many ways to get an education. And yet I can imagine that every one of those kids, when he was 13 and 14 playing those games, had an adult in the house or close by complaining. Complaining, mm. complaining about him playing the video games. Yep. Yeah. yeah, but he was learning a skill. Yeah. So yeah. it depends upon what you mean by education. But the point we're talking about is, is that when mommies and teachers and the organization, they get together almost like a giant community uh, or not a community, but a committee. A committee is not a community. Yeah. But in fact, a, uh, a community is when everybody likes the same colors and they put it together and it blends and you've got various hues of green, this dark and white and Kelly and forest and all that kind of stuff. But a committee, everybody adds their own color. And this has got red and that one's got blue and he's got green and that one's got black and this has got white. You put it all together and what you have is the color gray invariably. Yeah. A committee okay. yeah. is always producing something gray. <laughs> That's how it works, isn't it? Uh-huh. There is an old statement that's true as well as witty that a camel is a horse designed by a committee. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of that. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. So, uh... It has something to do with Peter and the Wolf, something that I had heard many, many years ago. So, um, basically, we're talking about how can we stop being part of a committee and start being in communion? Mm. The answer is stop being a committee inside of our own mind and start being in communion with ourselves. And when we learn how to do it with ourselves, we can do it with others too. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that's the committee then is all of the various uh, conflicts of interest that we have. So this time I'm thinking green, next time gray, that part over there brown, this one's red, that one's blue. And we we're another way of looking at it is that whenever we're telling a lie, we're separating ourselves from the truth. We're becoming a committee, yeah, a committee of opinions. Well, there's true, but then on the other hand, there's this story I have to tell that I'm trying to protect myself. Mm -hmm. But when I have no self to protect, when I'm in in harmony and unity then it's okay to tell the truth. When you say the telling the truth is much more easy when our sense of self is, isn't invested in these, all of these independent opinions. Exactly true. Yes. Um, and a clear example of that is, is that if someone actually knows something to be correct, then he's not going to argue with you. After he tries to convince you once or twice, it's over. But people who are not really sure of themselves will rage on and on and on, and it's not over yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because they're not really sure is it over or not. But when somebody knows for sure,
if they've got the solution and they're confident and uh, that this is actually correct, then the argument's over. Mm. Yeah. And he doesn't argue anymore. It's the other guys who argue all the time is because they don't know. And they know they don't know, but they're hoping and they're clinging to one position or the other. Mm. Yeah. So in that regard, you'll find even atheists and Christians in arguments. In fact, there was about a 10-year period where they were, they were very common. Every university and half the churches would invite an atheist in so that they could have, a, 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 let us say, a meat chopping ceremony because the atheist would always lose these debates because everybody in the audience was not about to change their opinions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pointless. <laughs> well, actually, no, it wasn't pointless. So, uh, because... Uh, Oh, what's his name? Sam Harris and uh, um, uh, Christopher Hitchens and uh, Richard Dawkins and uh, Lawrence. Um, Carl Sagan. Uh, uh, yeah, so you know them all, right. Yeah. They got famous and made a lot of money off of losing arguments one after another. <laughs> That's true. I mean, it's... It, it didn't go in the favor of how the uh, the Christians wanted it to at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Well, both sides of the argument in the case with the atheist, uh, basically the, the, the argument would always be, does God exist or not? Mm. And that's okay. the, that question is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Unless you can that's directly, a, you know. That's a, that's no, 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 no. If there is no self, then there's no need for God. The God is irrelevant if there's no self. Mm. In other words, the the God only is important when it gets the football called soul after you're dead to kick around. And if there is no soul, then who cares what God does after you're dead? Because you're dead. I suppose. Yeah. Um, and so they keep saying, the atheists keep saying, there ain't no God, which means there's no God to kick around my football. But the Buddha says, yeah, but there's no football. <laughs> it doesn't matter whether there's a God or not. God's irrelevant. Yeah, that, that, there's a point to be had with that, yeah. But they never get to that. That's not the atheist position. The atheist position is always anti-religion. Yeah. It's always the no side or the criticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rather than recognizing that, wait a minute, you could go so far as to say that we needed magical thinking to control the masters so that we could have a society. If we tried to teach the noble Dhamma to all the barbarians and all of the uh, primitives and all of the, um, uh, the tribals, then we would have never had a society. Mm. No, you got to tell them, hey, if you go do this, I'll give you that. Mm-hmm. And if you don't get it by the time I give it to you and you're dead, then we've got a God who's going to give it to you. Mm-hmm. This is the whole teaching of karma. 
you do good, you'll get good action. You get bad, you do bad, you'll get bad action. And then they add the line, no matter how long it takes. Mm. Guess what? That's magical thinking. If you do this, you may not get that. <laughs> because it's off in the future. That Remember that we're talking about a fire that burns. When you take that fuel away, there's no fire. So how can that fire then spontaneously come back 300 years from now? Okay. Mm -hmm. That's the way of looking at it is always back to this point of everything has to have a source. Everything is cause and effect that the Buddha does teach. Yes, there is good action that leads to good results, but those good results are collect connectable. For instance, if you eat something and you're very hungry, uh, you will gain strength from what you eat. You do good eating, you'll get good result. Mm -hmm. If you eat poison, then you'll get really sick. You do something bad, you'll get a bad result. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, when we're trying to build a society, things don't happen so quickly. <clears throat> that neither Rome nor the pyramids were built in a day. So how are you going to get pyramid builders to build a pyramid? You have yeah. to lie to them. You have to lie to them. You have to sell them something. You got to get them to do something that they don't want to do. That's how you get pyramids built. Okay. So you have to lie to these people because they're they're not they're not wise, but they're smart enough to believe your lie, that they can get some value out of it. And so this is how society is built. Now, every road and every lawnmower and all of that stuff got done because of the belief that if I do good, I'll get good results. And if I do bad, I'll get bad results, except mm -hmm. that I can avoid maybe the bad results. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is this is the, the way that society is built. Uh, you could think of it like this, that to reach the noble very, very high in the sky, like going to the moon, you can only send a very small package. But to get that rocket off the ground, you have to have that first stage. Those big, huge, <laughs> massive yeah. rocket engines that then get thrown off so that the little guy can get up there. So imagine then that religion and kings and um, all of the stories that go along with that is like those big, humongous rockets that get a society or the humankind launched into uh, something that's a whole lot better than uh, every man for himself, dog eat dog, uh, and we have that that bit of it, but it's based upon magical thinking. But then for the nobles is, is that we have to come beyond that magical thinking and go into a higher class of thinking. And that is the idea of the reality of no self. 
which now means that the real issue of escape all along was the, the suffering that was chaos. The suffering that is anarchy. Anytime that you use the word anarchy, what the word actually means is that there's, there's no uh, authority. Anarchy. The, uh, the, the arch, the, the, the top, the guys who were above you, there is no one better than me, is anarchy, right? Mm -hmm. Except that anarchy always deteriorates into warfare. Why doesn't it deteriorate into a party? Mm. Yeah. It doesn't. Everybody hopes that they're anarchy. At least when we get rid of this guy up here, now we can feel relieved. Oh, no. When you get rid of that guy up there, everybody else down here is going to be at war with one another. They needed that, uh, that, um, uh, that arch. Mm. They needed that uh, authority above them, like the police, to keep the this peace. Is, uh, this reminds me a lot of Dan Beck's spiral dynamic model. Pardon? Are you familiar with Dan Beck's spiral dynamic model? No, oh, but if he's talking the truth, so am it's I. <laughs> a, it, it's it's it parallels quite quite effect like quite well with what you're describing. It's he basically describes this as a spiral, and on the lower end of the spiral, you have mysticism, and then you have power, which is like anarchy, and then you have to have institutions that like police and religion that kind of establish some level of authority, but it's not based authority. on the ultimate truth. And then beyond uh -huh. that is then non-self. Exactly. And, Can you rise above your yeah. own authority? Yeah, it's, it's very, it's, it's nice to see that there's this parallel. It's, everything seems Well, this to, is the teaching of the Buddha. Yeah. This is not something that I invented. I'm not talking, I mean, I no, just, no, no, yeah. this, this is Buddha talking that the low-level people are the ones who are superstitious, and you need that superstition, because if you don't have that superstition, you're going to have bedlam. Yeah. Then it truly is a dog-eat-dog -dog world. It's the religion, the magic, the, uh, uh, the aristocracy, the rulers, all of that is what gives order to society. And so we have to congratulate them. As bad as Christianity's mistakes are, they're doing something marvelous. Mm -hmm. They're keeping in the they're keeping the people in the churches <laughs> instead of out robbing the banks. But a few of them do get out and rob the banks anyway. Uh, without religion, it'd be like taking the the floor from under society, and then there might be anarchy and more superstition and just quite mm -hmm. quite a mess. Exactly. And so we have to give credit where credit is due, that they do perform on a major important uh, point. However, everyone who supports that is also trapped by it. Yeah. And, it, and uh, just because we come out of chaos doesn't mean that we are now completely free from suffering. We're only free from the grossest kind of suffering. Yeah. But there's a lot of subtle suffering, and that subtle suffering actually has to do now with the critical thinking that comes along. Mm -hmm. That we can go up higher than that, and that is the nurturing where everything is okay, everybody's acceptable, because everyone is wise enough to recognize that they too want to be free from suffering. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they don't want to spread suffering to other people. 
But down at that low level down here is that I'm suffering and I'm going to kill anybody who gets in my way of trying to stop me from uh, doing what I want to do to get what I want, hoping that that will get me out of suffering. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you have been three layers. And that they want everybody to be in that middle layer and very few in that lower layer, but also that very top layer is rare. It's rarefied and not many people get that. Mm -hmm. But the question is, why not? Why not allow two thirds of the people who are trapped in the, uh, the success of society to transcend society? Uh, It would be completely counter to a lot of the move, the the momentum of what we have running. The momentum is the gross national product, gross domestic product. Okay, what would happen to the GNP if 10 percent of the people just said, well, I'm going to enjoy my life. I'm going to quit my job, stop owning things, just settle down, maybe get an old uh, junker of a car and travel around. And enjoy life. Make a bunch of friends along the way. What would happen to the GNP then? (laughs) Some problems. Nobody buys any, or very few people buy new cars anymore. We all buy the junkers. But it's a transition that I imagine will either happen or society will fall apart. Well... This is is the whole idea of the Open Sangha uh, network, is to spread the the Dhamma that can be used. Which, Mm -hmm. basically, the two points that we have are, number one, is is that we don't charge money for it. Because if you charge money for the Dhamma, you're just back into the business world anyway. And the other one is, let's not teach... um, religion or mysticism or magic let's teach something that works the Mm. real deal the real teaching of the buddha and if we could do that then i think that we could uh uh actually there's so many people already in the west interested in buddhism but they're going to all the wrong places for it you yep. probably heard the song, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. Yep. Even when they're looking uh, for love in Buddhism, they still look in all the wrong places. Mm-hmm. Where do they look? They look in books. They look in for famous people. They, they look for um, big retreat centers. They look for uh, Reddit and Discord. And what they find there is everybody else like them. But the Dhamma has to be given freely. Why? Because the whole point of the two people, the guy who's listening and the guy who's talking, is for them to bond together in friendship, brothers. Mm. And I'm not to be kept up here with you down here. Oh, no, this is... (laughs) It's the equal part. Both on the same, same plane. Both of them on the same plane, and that plane is the noble plane, the plane of wisdom, the plane sure. of delight, the plane of joy and nurturing, and not the plane of criticism. Okay. That makes sense. 
Well, I had no idea where this talk was going, but it's, it seems to have wound up in a good place. <laughs> yeah, sure thing. Yep. Well, I appreciate I appreciate your time. Thanks. So, my only last thing to say is, is that practice well the Anapanasati of being gushy and warm and happy and comfortable with yourself. Even when there's anxiety, hold up that too. It's kept you alive. Be friends well, with it. If you try to get rid of it, that's just going to make more adrenaline come. Oh, we've got a problem here. We've got anxiety. We've got to go get rid of it. <laughs> but if you say, oh, no, it's okay. I'll be all right. And then it will melt away. Will do. Will do. Be easy on yourself. Practice well. Have wholesome thoughts. I'll practice well. Deep breathe. Enjoy. Thank you. Take care. (laughs)